Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. Let me ask you a question as we get going today. Are you fully prepared for an impending zombie apocalypse? <laughs> Some of you said yes very quickly. Uh, I'd be interested to have that conversation with you. Uh, now, let me say, that is not a question uh, that I, if you would have said six months ago, uh, Michael, do you think you would ever ask if we're ready for a zombie apocalypse? I would have said, no, I will never ask that. Um, but I think it is pertinent to where we're going today, and uh, let me just say clearly, I don't believe there is a coming zombie apocalypse, all right, so don't go straight to social media, and, and, and here's what I understand, is that for some of you today, you're appalled that I even brought up zombie apocalypse, I mean, we're in church, goodness, and some of you are appalled that I just denied that a zombie apocalypse is coming. But either way, uh, the reality is, in uh, October of 2010, a new TV show came to uh, the channel AMC called The Walking Dead, all right? And that show became a phenomenon. In fact, at one point, there were 7 million people a week that were tuning in to watch this show. And it created a renewed interest and fascination all, with all things zombies. In fact, uh, even today, you can find on Disney, there's a cartoon uh, with zombies. Uh, it, it, is, it, is, it created this kind of this wave of, of interest and fascination in it. Uh, zombies, interestingly enough, I'm going to give you your zombie trivia for the day. Uh, that idea began in Haiti in the 17th century. And so it has been around for hundreds of years, but we have seen this renewed fascination. And for many people, there is a fascination, whether it's zombies or ghosts or spirits. These, these, these questions or ideas about what happens to us? What happens after all of this wraps up? And as we began last week, this journey through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see that Paul is going to address this issue. Now, not zombies. Sorry, if you're looking for that. Uh, you're not going to find that in 1 Corinthians 15. But this idea of the resurrection. We sang about it today, right? On that day, right? Talking about the resurrection. And he was having to, if you remember, he was having to correct some faulty thinking as there were people in the church at Corinth that believed that there was not going to be a resurrection, there would be no resurrection of the dead, of believers in Christ. And so last week, he laid a foundation for us of the centrality of the resurrection to the gospel message, that Christ rose from the dead and that he appeared to many people as giving evidence to that resurrection. And if you remember, on the back end of that, we saw that he showed how, how the resurrection of Jesus is very closely tied to the resurrection of his followers. And he went so far as to say that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we won't be raised from the dead. And if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, you remember the line he said, that we should be pitied among all people. What Paul would say that is if the resurrection isn't true, you got dressed up for nothing today. Right, that, that this is meaningless, this is pointless. And we saw that he connects this link. And so today we're going to dive in and see a little bit more about what he is saying about the nature of this resurrection. And I hope to give us some encouragement about a guarantee that is coming for us, but also see how that guarantee of the resurrection and the nature of the resurrection itself impacts your life today. 
All right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to begin in verse 20. So I want to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. And as you're standing, I just want to say, uh, Raphael, thank you for reading scripture today. If, it's, if I have a vote, you can read it every week. Uh, <laughs> it just sounds awesome. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 20, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he uh, puts all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under his feet, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all and in all. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you this time today. Spirit of God, would you speak clearly to your people? God, where we need to experience conviction in our life, we invite you into that. God, for those today that need the comfort of your word and the promises of your word, Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort today. Lord, for all of us in here, we know that we still have so much, so much to go in our journey of becoming more and more like you. And we're grateful that we can have a time right now that we can trust the power of your word to bring transformation into our lives. And so we ask for that today, God. Would your word, would it truly be living and active in this moment in our own personal lives? So God, we give you this moment today in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. amen. You can be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. Today, as we look at this continued conversation about the resurrection in verse 20, We'll go down through verse 34 today. But today I want you to consider that your life should reflect your eternal hope found in Jesus. That's what we're going to find in this text today, that your life should reflect your eternal hope found in Jesus. And as we dig in today, we're first going to begin with this idea of the eternal hope that we have in him, specifically as it relates to the resurrection. So remember, he ended that last se session or se section last week about that if the resurrection isn't true. He's throwing out this, uh, this hypothetical idea that if the resurrection isn't true. But then in verse 20, we see that he begins verse 20 with a strong words here, but. Now he's going to contrast a hypothetical with what is reality. And he says, but as it is Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want you to see today as we navigate this text today, first understanding of a future that is guaranteed through Christ's resurrection. A future guaranteed through Christ's resurrection. He says here that it is Christ that has been raised from the dead. That is a reality. We know that. And he refers to Christ here as the first Fruits. This is an interesting word that he would use here. Scholars believe that Paul could be intending it in one of three ways. 
Possibly, he simply means as a matter of order, that Christ's resurrection was first. Others believe that it could be referring to the first fruits offering that we find in Leviticus chapter 23. It is in that text that we see that God's people would bring a grain offering, uh, the first fruits, if you will, from their harvest, and they would bring it as, uh, as worship unto the Lord. What's interesting is you look at that in, in Leviticus chapter 23, is that that grain offering was to be given specifically on the first day of the week. Now you think about the resurrection of Christ. We understand that he was risen from the dead on the first day of the week. So we see this unique tie between a grain offering in the Old Testament and Christ's resurrection as the first fruits. Others believe that simply Paul could be thinking here about the first fruit offering as a representation of the greater harvest that was to come. And so in that manner, Christ being first and the rest of his followers being that great harvest that is to come. But he says there that, that, that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And just last week, as he had made that tie between the significance of Christ's resurrection and his followers' resurrection, he's going to double down on that today for us from a theological standpoint. He, he's going to make the connection, we see it here, uh, as he's going to say in verse 22, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So I want you to think here about kind of two ideas. Number one, in Adam, right? He says there for all in Adam, but then he also says in Christ. Why is that significant? We'll look at the verse before, verse 21. For since death came through a man, that would be in Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. That would be in Christ. We see probably the clearest connection of this understanding of Adam as our representative in death and Christ as our representative in righteousness and in the resurrection in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, it makes it clear that death came into the world through one man, Adam. Adam as the representative, and for humanity, born in the line of Adam, it means that his sin and sin nature, his sin nature is imputed to us. It means that we are born in that sin. We can do no different. And the reality of Scripture tells us, or Scripture tells the reality is, is that because of that sin, the wages of sin is what? It is death. Maybe today you're thinking, well, Michael, that's not fair. Why am I having to pay the debt that, <laughs> that Adam cost? Well, I would just say today, I'd invite you. Well, let's not worry about Adam, and we'll just take your life. How are you doing? You're probably not going to fare much better, are you? But you see, the Bible is clear that all of us are in Adam. There is a sin nature that separates us from God, and it brings death. But the great news here, this guarantee of, the first guarantee we see here is just that of a bodily resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection. Because of the work of Christ and the good news that even though our sin does separate us from God, that God's love for us was demonstrated in Christ's coming, living a perfect life, dying a death he did not deserve, being buried and raising again from the dead. And that when we put our faith and trust in that, we repent and turn from our sin and trust on Christ, the Bible says we are made right with God. It means that now we are no longer in Adam, but now we are in Christ. And for those that are in Christ, as it says here, that the resurrection of the dead comes through a man, speaking of Christ, is now our representative. 
And it says that those that are in Christ, look at the end of verse 22, all will be made alive. Now, I want to be clear here. There are some that may have the understanding that the idea of all being made alive means just some disembodied soul that will just float around for all of eternity. But that's not the picture we see here. It's not the picture we see of the first fruits of Christ and his bodily resurrection. One in which in Luke chapter 24, we see several things. Number one, he had a physical body that could be touched. Secondly, and I love this one, that he was able to eat. What does that mean? It means that in our resurrected, glorified state, uh, state, we are still going to be able to enjoy food. You know what that means? I'm having strawberry shortcake for breakfast every day. (laughs) Every day. The great news, I don't even know that we'll need to eat. But God in his goodness towards us will allow us to continue to enjoy a great meal. But it is a physical, bodily resurrection that is guaranteed for us because of what Christ did. But I want you to see it's not just a future guarantee of a physical, bodily resurrection, but that it is a part of that bodily resurrection, is a part of something bigger, and that is a restored kingdom. That, that, that our physical resurrection is a part of something so much bigger, and that is that God will be restoring his kingdom. Look with me here in verse 22. He says, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so now after Paul has established that, yes, because uh, we are in Christ, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, we will be made alive with him. He is now going to lay out for us a sequence. How is this going to unfold? How is this thing going to play out in this resurrection of the dead? He gives us an important clarifying uh, phrase here at the end of verse 23 of who it will be that experienced the resurrection. He says, those who belong to Christ. Some may be tempted to look at verse 22 where he says that all will be made alive and say, well, at that time, all of humanity will be raised from the dead. But he's clear here. It says, no, it is only for those who belong to him. It brings us to a natural point of asking a question, are you a part of those who belong to Christ? Is there a confidence for you on that day, the day that we have sung about this morning? Is there confidence for you that on that day that you will experience this bodily resurrection because you belong to Christ? Look at verse 24. Then comes the end. So this resurrection of his followers, it is a part of God writing the final chapter in this story as we head into eternity in his presence. And it says here that it is at his coming. This word was a formal word that was used for the arrival of an emperor or someone of royalty into a village. And all that that would mean. And every time we see it used in the New Testament, it's referring to Christ coming again. Coming not in the meekness of a baby in a manger, but a reigning, ruling king that is coming to receive his victory. So it tells us here that then comes the end. And look at what he says here in verse 24. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign 
until he puts all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be abolished is death. Now, I want you to catch this moment. It says that in the end, when he comes. Now, for some of us in here, we love to think about the end times and what it's going to look like. Right? For, for some of us in here, we kind of fall on a pendulum where we're way over here. And, man, we love to study Revelation and, and then talk like we know what we're talking about, even though you don't. And I don't, right? But, but you, love, you want to know all of it. You read it. You're looking at the book of Daniel. You're looking at the Old Testament. You're reading all this. And then there's some of us on this side of the pendulum. It's like, hey, I, I'm going to be there. We'll just see how it goes, right? And you probably fall somewhere in between. But understand that Paul's motivation here is not to give you a specific play-by-play of every detail that is happening. He's simply showing you that the bodily resurrection is a part of something bigger, and that is God restoring his eternal kingdom. And as we see here, he says something significant, that he will abolish all rule and all authority and all power. Why is that significant for you today right here in Washtenaw Parish? Because I want you to be reminded that the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, that is what your struggle is against. Remember he said that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of darkness and against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. And understand that our first fruit that Christ and his resurrection in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us um, that we were dread in our trespasses. But in the resurrection of Christ, it says, but, but God has made Christ. He is now alive and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, a place where he is ruling over all of these authorities, these rulers, power and dominion. Every title is given. And it says, not just in this age, but in the age to come. And so we consider today that in our journey as a believer, that our struggle is against these rulers and authorities, these dominions that exist. But Christ in his resurrection is in a place of authority over them. In Daniel chapter 2, there is a prophecy of saying, listen, that when he comes, he will come and his kingdom will be victorious. He will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Maybe you ask today, Michael, what are these rulers and authorities, these dominions? I I would say today, I believe that he's speaking here of Satan and his demons and, and the evil in the world. But understand today, it's not just that. It is death. It's it's death itself. I want you, we're going to think about that. I need you to really put your your, your thinking cap on here. We're going to look theologically. We're going to dig a little bit here because I want you to see the significant weight of of the resurrection and and how it is connected to the restoring of the kingdom and what it means for the reality of death. We're going to see here that he's going to say two times in this, he's going to quote kind of the same idea that God has put his enemies under his feet or he has put everything under his feet. These are quotes from Psalm chapter 8 and Psalm chapter 110. In Psalm chapter 8, we don't have time to go there today, but if you were to look at it, you would see that it is a psalm that is speaking about creation and about humanity having authority or dominion over his creation. When we look in Genesis, we see as he's going to create Adam and Eve, he is going to instruct them that they are to have authority over his creation and they are to subdue it. Right? They are to subdue it. They are into a place of authority over creation. In Psalm chapter 110, we see that, that in that psalm, it speaks of a king 
A king who would be victorious over all. Right? So we have Psalm 8, Psalm 110. Both of those are being alluded to. They're in Paul's mind as he's writing this. This idea of humanity having dominion over creation. At the same time, a king who will come and be victorious over all. And understand that for Adam and Eve, when they were given this dominion over all of creation... They were to be, in a sense, a vice regent of God and his authority. They were to be representative of that. But God, with that responsibility, also gave them, I'm sorry, with that opportunity, also gave them responsibility. Because he told them, Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, that you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do it, you shall die. And what do we find? That they do disobey. And that Adam's sin introduced a dominion of sin and death rather than a dominion of righteousness and life that would bring glory to God. And what we find takes place is that even though humanity had been given this rule to have dominion over creation and to subdue it, that when sin entered the world, now it was sin that began to reign. It was death that began to reign over humanity. In fact, if you go back to Romans chapter 5, as I referenced earlier, Romans chapter 5, verse 14, it tells us that death reigned from the time of Adam. Verse 17, death reigned through that one man. Verse 21, sin reigned in death. Uh, Romans 6, 12, that we are not to let sin reign. And so as we think about God restoring the kingdom, and we see that he's going to put everything under his feet with that understanding that because sin entered the world, death begins to reign, and it is 100% effective towards humanity. But look here, feel the weight of this. Verse 25. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26. Feel it. The last enemy to be abolished is death. In the time of Adam, death would reign. But on that day, his eternal kingdom will be restored and the last enemy will be death. And then we see in verse 27, for God has put everything under his feet. And when he says everything, it is obvious who puts everything under him is the exception. Then verse 28, everything is subject to Christ. This idea that he's giving here. Is like a warrior who has a sword in his hand, and when the battle is done, he puts it back in the sheath. The idea that is when the kingdom is restored, that Christ will fulfill the mission that he was given to do what he was sent to do, and he will subject himself to the Father. It's the uniqueness of the relationship between them. What does that mean for us today? There is a future that is guaranteed today. And listen, if I walked into a room of strangers that I didn't know any of them, I would be tempted to give them a word of encouragement to tell them that the best is yet to come. But let me tell you, if you're not a believer in Christ, I can't give you that strong encouragement. It sounds good, and it feels good for me to tell you the best is yet to come, but I don't know that. But I can say with great confidence that if you are a believer in Christ, you have given your life to follow him, I can say without any hesitation, the best is yet to come. There's a future that is guaranteed for us, regardless of what this last month has held for you. Regardless of how bleak your job situation looks into the future. 
No matter how difficult it has been to see your prodigal child continue to walk in rebellion. And all the hurts that we experience in this life, what this passage does for us is it encourages us the best is yet to come. Maybe here you're thinking, but Michael, this stuff is like way out there. What does it mean for me today? Well, Paul understands that the resurrection is not just a future promise, but it's a, it's a present call to obedience. Second thing I want you to see today is not just a future guaranteed through Christ's resurrection, but a present obedience because of Christ's resurrection. Look at me in verse 29. He says, otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? If I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. I want you to see today that the resurrection of Christ and the promised resurrection for those that belong to Christ, it impacts the way that we live today. At least it should. The call for a present Obedience. As you look at verse 29, let me be real honest with you. I have no idea what he's talking about. I mean, we, we read verse 29 and it seems pretty clear, right? Otherwise, why would, be, why would those who are being baptized for the dead? It, it, there's a, an allusion there too that there were people in Corinth who were being baptized hoping that it would count on someone else's behalf. A proxy baptism, if you, if you will. The Mormons, they, they practiced this. But I'll tell you, even though it may seem uh, easy to understand what he's saying here, the truthfulness in the original language, it's much more difficult to understand. In fact, there's uh, one gentleman who did his doctoral dissertation just on this verse. Hours and hours and hours and hours and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books read and, and a significant research paper that was turned in. And at the end of all of his research, he came to the end. And you know what he decided? I have no idea what it means. <laughs> And so I just, again, being forthright with you, I don't know what it means. But I want us to focus in today on verse 30 through the end of this section here in verse 34. Paul says here, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts at Ephesus as a mere man, what good did it do for me? Here's what Paul's considering in this moment. That if the resurrection isn't true... If I don't have this future guarantee of bodily resurrection to be in his presence for all of eternity in this restored kingdom in which I will enjoy God and his glory forever, why am I doing what I'm doing? I think if Paul were to say it in the positive, he would say because of the promised resurrection that is to come, he, he knows that his sacrifice and his service is not wasted. He knows it's not wasted. He mentions there, I think it's interesting, he mentions there about fighting this wild beast at Ephesus. We don't see that recorded in scripture anywhere. Some scholars believe that they're talking about his relationship with the deacons in Ephesus. That was a joke. (laughs) 
We don't know exactly what he's talking about there, but he's just reflecting. Like, if I don't have a future guaranteed with this resurrection to join Christ in his resurrected body and to spend forever with him in his presence, what am I doing? It kind of goes back to that idea of we should be pitied, right, if it's not true. But we know scripture tells us, listen, don't grow weary in doing good. If you'll reap a harvest, right, if you don't give up and that your labor is not in vain. It's not wasted. So whether you're rocking those babies in the preschool area, or you're serving in our community, you're volunteering at the thrift store, you're going on a short-term mission trip, or maybe, maybe God's calling you to give your life to go to the far places, to be a lifetime missionary. Paul's saying it's not wasted. It's not just that it's not wasted, that our lives have meaningful purpose behind them. But there's an opportunity for us to walk in obedience. He's going to go back to say it in the, from a negative perspective. Look with me at the end of verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If, 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 the, if the people in Corinth that are saying there is no resurrection, if they're right, let's live life the way we want to live it. Let's live Mardi Gras out to the fullest extent, right? Let's just do it. Let's try to experience all the joys that this world can bring because this is all you got. He quotes here from a Greek, uh, a Greek saying there that bad company corrupts good morals. And then I want you to feel the weight of verse 34. Come to your senses. This is literally stop thinking crazy thoughts. Stop thinking the way that you're thinking. Several weeks ago, we saw the incredible moment with DeMar Hamlin, plays for the Buffalo Bills, where they saved his life right there on the football field. And that was incredible to watch that unfold and to see really how the story has continued to unfold. But, but the game of football is a, it's a violent sport, right? And we see injuries that happen on a consistent basis in that game. One of the things that maybe you've seen happen in a football game before is a guy gets hurt and he's laying and you can tell he's kind of woozy. And then the athletic trainer, the medical staff, they come out and they take this little packet and they put it right under their nose. Have you seen that before? Smelling salt. And you know the minute they smell it, don't you? Cool, right? I mean, it brings them back. And in a sense, in this moment, as Paul is having them consider the implications of the resurrection in their lives. He is saying this is more than just a future understanding of how it's going to unfold. He's saying put the smelling salt of the truth of the resurrection under your nose and come to your senses. And in coming to their senses, what does he call them to? Here's the imperative. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. There's a call here for present obedience because of Christ's resurrection. And I, want you to miss, I don't want you to miss this. He says, for some people are ignorant about God, I say this to your shame. You know, when we hear that word theology, it means the study of God. That seems like a big word. Seems like that in cases of just a lot. But the truth is, all of us, practice theology. We have our understanding about God. 
But we also, in a sense, live theology. I want you to know that if you gave me enough time to observe your life up close, I could be able to have a pretty good confidence about what your theology is. Because the way, that you ref- the way that you live always reflects what you believe about God. Do you hear me? The way that you live always reflects what you believe about God. You can tell me what you believe about him. But the truer measure of what you believe is how you live. And what Paul understands here is that for those that were saying there is no resurrection of the dead, for some of them, they obviously believed that they were just going to live the way that they want. They were going to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The way they were living was reflecting what they were believing. My fear is that for some of us in here, we're taking God's forgiveness and we're rubbing it through the mud. Because in our mind, what we believe about God is that, oh yeah, God, he's loving and he's forgiving and he has grace. And so I'm going to bank on that at some point. I'll go to that when I need it. But I'm going to live life the way I want to live life because why not? I got one life to live. My friends are doing it. I have to keep up with the Jones, right? Whatever it is, you're living in that manner. And you living in that manner, although you may say what you believe about God, what Paul says is you are ignorant about God. Because for the person that is in Christ, is a person whose desire is to pursue Christ and to live for Christ above all things. And so today, as you consider what is to come, as you consider a future resurrection, that he has for those that belong to Christ. May it challenge us today, the call, that the theology that we live would match a theology that we find in the word. And it would be one in which we know Christ and we treasure Christ and we live for Christ above all. I understand that today is a very unique passage of Scripture. But it's one that I believe that we can learn from and that we can grow from. For some of you today, my hope is in the midst of your sadness, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of the chaos that you're walking through right now. Maybe today you have felt like you, like you were experiencing that storm that we see of the one who built his house on the sand and built his house on the rock. That today you would be reminded in the midst of day by days, the struggles of life, that listen, there is a better day that is coming. You know, the hope for the believer in Christ, as I heard a pastor say a while back, is that the clouds are always moving. I want you to consider that for a moment. The clouds are always moving. We know that we're going to walk out of these doors today and we're going to go out into this parking lot and it's going to be rainy and cloudy. But listen, it's not going to stay that way, is it? And for some of you right now, the weather outside today is a great reflection of the life um, situation you find yourself in. But I want to remind you, the clouds are always moving. For the believer in Christ, you know that you are moving towards a day of beauty and glory and life and walk in it. My hope for some of you today is that you would allow this word and the spirit of God to really evaluate your heart today. 
Does the theology that I live match up with the theology that I read? Am I pursuing Christ? Am I living my life leaning into him with the hope that I'm becoming more and more like Jesus? So on that day, when I rise just like the first fruits did, when I rise from the dead, that it will be a glorious moment knowing that as I look back at my life, I see that I fought the good fight and I finished the race. Would you bow your heads with me today? Just want to give you a moment here. Just you and the Lord. Today, I hope that you will be reminded of the strong assurance and guarantee that we can have because of what Christ has done for us. And maybe today you're here and you don't feel like you have any guarantees in your life. But today you have heard that God is not just your maker. He is the one who can rescue you. Rescue you from your sin. Rescue you from your brokenness. Rescue you from a meaningless life of just trying to get by day by day by day with really no idea of what direction you're heading. But the hope of Jesus is that he has clearly made a way for us to experience the victory that comes with eternal life. And today, right now in this moment, you just need to say yes to him. The Bible says we do it by faith. We don't clean our lives up. We just come to him by faith and say, God, I'm ready to believe. I'm I'm ready to trust you. I'm ready to give my life to be in Christ, and right now in this moment, right now in the stillness of this moment, in the quietness of your heart, just tell him that. God, I'm ready to give my life to you. I believe that Jesus died and that he rose from the dead, and I'm confessing today that he will be Lord of my life. Maybe today in this moment, just need to be reminded again that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let's keep walking by faith. Keep trusting him. Keep knowing that the victory is coming in him and that the clouds are always moving. Maybe today you hear the firm voice of the Spirit of God saying, stop sinning. Stop living your life 
contrast to what you say you believe. Commit to him again today. God, I want to walk in present obedience with you day by day, trusting in your grace, but walking by faith and obedience. today. We're grateful that you're in this place. We're grateful that your word does not return void. And God, as I think about so many of um, so many individuals and families that, that I've seen and visited with even today in this room and others that I haven't, Lord, that you know that God, we just need that reminder that the clouds are always moving. And that reminder that to be in you means that we will stand in victory with you. And that our greatest enemy, death, has been abolished. That you have the victory over it. And that day is coming when death will be no more. And so God, would we live in response to that and a present obedience in our life? God, for some of us today, God, would we be this be a moment where we come to our senses and I'm thankful today God that when we come to our senses it is in that place that we find grace we find the father of the prodigal son who ran to his child and with a heart full of joy says my son who was lost is now found help us God to walk in a present obedience to you in Christ's name Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We hope, again, that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need, and I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104, and we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.